Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 25th of February 2024, 9.30 service. David Lofman speaking on Spring Cleaning Our Lives From Anger. I think there's a question people often want to ask me, but they hardly ever do. But an old friend recently plucked up the courage and he asked me, Aren't you angry at God for everything that's happened to you? He was referring to the autoimmune disease I developed when I was 17. It resulted in the amputation of both of my legs in 2004. That was a terrible time. And then again, two years ago, I developed kidney cancer, which kicked off the autoimmune disease again. That resulted in the amputation of my only surviving knee. The knee that had enabled me to walk on prosthetic legs for 17 years. It enabled me to continue my full-time career as a teacher. With that knee, I was able to take an active part in our family life. I helped my son play football, a sport he loves. I was able to collect Iona, our daughter, day or night, wherever she was, and bring her safely home. We went on camping trips to France, Italy, Scotland. But because of that cancer and the amputation of my one remaining knee, it dawned on Katie and me, just a couple of months ago really, I was never going to walk again. As a result, I had become a permanent, full-time wheelchair user. That's not been an easy situation to accept. Indeed, when Stephen asked me to preach on anger four weeks ago, just over a year and a half years since I'd been in hospital, we're still trying to accept and adapt to this new way of life. It's still a work in progress. There have been times over the last year or so when things have felt really, really unfair. And I've wondered where God was in my life. Anger would seem a natural reaction to such a situation. There have been times over this last year or so when life just seemed to have lost all its meaning all its purpose and value. And at those times, I felt that I had no faith anymore. I didn't feel angry. I just felt a cold indifference to the world. I felt that nothing mattered. I've probably made it sound like that's all in the past, that it's all over and done with. It's all tidied away. But it's not. For those of you who know me well, you know I struggle with these thoughts and feelings. They come in waves. As a result, I just take each day as it comes. It's meant writing this sermon has been quite a challenge. Anger would seem to be a natural reaction to such a situation. But I don't feel angry at all. 
So I wondered what I've done with this natural reaction of anger to my situation that has brought me in front of you all this morning, sitting on this platform in a wheelchair and looking at you all eye to eye. Well, I think I buried that anger deep inside myself. I think it's so overwhelmingly painful to think about everything that I've lost over the years. And I think those losses are so profound, any natural reaction would be anger. Anger at God, who, even if he didn't cause it, he at least allowed such destruction to take place in my life. So I've not allowed myself to experience it. Not feeling anger has enabled me to carry on with my life. I get up in the morning, I shower, dress, I go to work twice a week. On other days, I, I'm at the gym. I spend some time with Katie. We do the shopping and cooking. We see friends and we're beginning to make plans to go into central London to galleries or stroll along the South Bank. We're beginning to navigate a life for ourselves. Experiencing anger at my situation feels as though it would be so powerful, I just wouldn't be able to function properly. I wouldn't be able to work. My relationships with my family and friends would be damaged or destroyed by bitterness. And I can imagine in this state, I'd, I'd need other things to depend on to help me through each day. Overeating, alcohol, drugs, legal or illegal. And there are other consequences to not feeling angry. Because I've realized one can't just simply turn off one emotion. Apparently, if you turn off one emotion, you turn them all off. Like pleasure, joy, happiness, and live a kind of half-life, a life in the grey, a life in the shadows. Last summer, our daughter Iona got married to Andrew. It was a fantastic event. We were overjoyed. Well, at least I know what feeling overjoyed looks like. I knew what it would feel like. The best event of Iona's life so far, and for Katie and me, a huge blessing. We were happy, especially when Iona asked me if I'd give a father of the bride speech. And suddenly, I found myself confronting the great weight of anger being ill had created in me. But I also felt the incredible joy as a father at his only daughter's wedding. As I started writing the speech, I was also writing poems about the anger and loss I'd experienced over decades of disease and disability. One moment I found myself writing about a recent memory of sitting with Iona near the river in Kingston, enjoying the warmth of a summer's day. 
hearing swans, ducks and geese overhead. And then the next moment, I'm writing about the time years ago we were on holiday in North Wales and Katie says to me, the children and me are going to go climbing Mount Snowdon today. What are you going to do? There were a million things I could have done, loads of places I could visit. There were even people I could have popped in and said hello to. But what I did was find a lay-by off the A5 and sat there for seven hours facing home. My family and Snowdonia lay behind me and my thoughts filled with the pain, the jealousy, the anger of being left out on this incredibly special family adventure. The loss experienced in that family memory is so profound, I can barely put it into words. My children's memories of that day are fantastic, their pride and exhilaration of reaching the summit. Even the muscle aches and the sores, the exhaustion, the physical weariness are all part of that treasured memory. And I'm not in any part of those memories. I'm just a present absence. And over the years since then, there have been many times I've missed out like that. Not only missed out on being a father, but also missed out on being a husband. Missing out on all these things as as well as being angry, just feels like too much to bear. In Matthew chapter 5, it's written, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. This passage comes from the Sermon on the Mount. In it, Jesus reminds his listeners to the Ten Commandments, written about one and a half thousand years before. Moses received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. The receiving of the Ten Commandments is one of the most important moments in the history of the Jewish people. It's a moment where God gives his people the foundation, building blocks of their civilization. The whole nation is gathered. There in the desert, at the foot of the mountain. The mountain itself covered with an impenetrable cloud. Only Moses ascends. The people, men and women, their children, their livestock, are warned not to walk upon it at all. To do so means certain death. And so out there, in such a lonely place, surrounded by thunder and lightning, the mountain itself shaking, God speaks directly to Moses. And in the hearing of the people, it's a powerful 
and dramatic moment. The people are terrified. But Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount is completely, it's a completely different situation. Here's a man who speaks directly to their ordinary, everyday experiences. And so when Jesus speaks these words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he's reminding his listeners that nothing has changed, that everything God told the people on Sinai would be honoured and fulfilled. But the Jews of Jesus' time in Matthew 5 were a settled and established nation. But a nation occupied and ruled over by the greatest empire in the world, the Roman Empire. And Jesus, speaking one and a half thousand years later, reminds his listeners of who they are. It's an incredible moment in which Jesus takes the commandments and speaks directly to the people's everyday knowledge and experience. Jesus was reminding his listeners of something they, they knew already and all too well, that sin is more than action. Sin is also thought. He tells them the action of murder first begins with thoughts. Thoughts like hate, jealousy, greed. Even feeling anger towards a fellow brother or sister is a sin and liable to judgment and condemnation. In William Blake's Songs of Innocence, there's a poem. It's called The Poison Tree. I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath, my wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not, my wrath did grow. And I watered it with fears, night and morning with my tears. And I sunned it with smiles and with soft deceitful wiles. And it grew both day and night till it bore an apple bright. And my foe beheld it shine and he knew that it was mine. And into my garden stole when the night had veiled the pole. In the morning, glad I see my foe outstretched beneath the tree. Jesus knows that human anger is difficult for people to control. This emotion is so powerful it can easily lead us into sin. And in his poem, The Poison Tree, Blake writes of a narrator who is angry with his neighbour. It begins with a thought, anger. The anger is fed in the narrator's thinking all the time so that by the end of the poem anger had grown and developed it had transformed into action the narrator of the poem is at least responsible for the death of his neighbor an evil act had grown out of thought and if we're serious about spring cleaning our lives in preparation for easter we need to remind ourselves that sin is not just action. Actions have their beginnings in thoughts and attitudes towards family members, friends, neighbours, strangers. I've never been very good at confronting anger face to face. Probably most of us aren't. 
Years ago, I became really angry at my brother-in-law. So I decided to confront him face-to-face, man-to-man. But for one reason or another, we couldn't agree on a place or time to meet. I just had to hold on to my anger that burned inside me. After a few days, I decided the thing to do is to write to him. This was years before the internet and word processors. I had to write it out by hand. It took ages. At last, I'd finished it. I'd managed to express my anger. I demanded an apology. Nothing else could satisfy the pain and the hurt I'd felt. I showed it to my mother. She pointed out a few errors, and I quickly realized I was going to have to write the whole letter out again by hand. As I wrote, I remember I felt that I was carving each word out on the page with an anger that would draw blood. When I'd finished it, I read it through. (laughs) But I'd noticed I'd missed out a crucial sentence, and I realized I was going to have to write the letter out again. When I'd finished, I'd read it through to make sure everything was all right. And would you believe it? I found another mistake. I was going to have to do the whole thing again. How frustrating. How tedious and boring. So I started writing it all out by hand and again for the third time. But my anger and sense of injustice had gone. And incredibly, I began to see things from my brother-in-law's point of view. I just didn't feel angry with him anymore. This was anger on a personal level. But anger needs to be dealt with on an international level as well. Have you heard of the West Eastern Divan Orchestra? Or the Said Barenboim Academy? The orchestra was set up in 1999 by Daniel Barenboim, a world-famous Jewish-Argentinian pianist and conductor. And Edward Said, he was an American Palestinian, a Muslim, and an academic. The orchestra was set up for young people born in Israel from both Muslim and Jewish descent. Its aims include equality, cooperation and justice for all. It plays concerts throughout the world, including the Middle East, including a landmark concert in Ramallah in 2005. Ramallah, a Palestinian city in Israel's West Bank. It's a de facto capital city of Palestine. These concerts have been steps towards fulfilling its aspirations of peace, between the Palestinian and Israeli people. The orchestra represents an alternative picture to the one that dominates the Middle East right now, characterized by conflict and violence. As we continue to spring clean our lives this Lent, let us be inspired by the West Eastern Divan Orchestra and other such organizations worldwide that recognize the destructive force of anger 
and work to create positive attitudes.